Jewish Latin Princess, Episode 40, Miriam Balin, Hatzalas Wonder Woman. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at jewishlatinprincess.com, your host, Yael. Would you be able to be on call at all hours of the day to save a life? All while you raise a family and have a career as a family therapist. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess, everyone. I'm your host, Yael Trush. Welcome to the show. My guest today has been called Hatzalah's Wonder Woman. Miriam Balin is on the show. Miriam, an American now living in Israel, is the founder and national director of Hatzalah's Psychotrauma and Crisis Response Unit. She has been a Hatzalah medic for nearly five years and has won the Outstanding Medic Award in Hatzalah two years in a row, the first woman to achieve this. The Talmud teaches, he who saves a life, saves the world. And my guest today has taken this to heart, applying it every single day. Where does Miriam draw strength from whenever she wonders if the work is too much for her shoulders? What is family like for Miriam as a Hatzalah medic and as the wife of a, of a Hatzalah medic? Yes, it's a husband and wife team. Why psychotrauma and crisis response? And what is Miriam's unit doing that is revolutionizing EMT care in Israel? This and more in a most powerful interview with Hatzalah's Wonder Woman, Miriam Balin. Salas Wonder Woman, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess. Thank you for having me. I am so thrilled to have you on the show. First of all, I want to tell you, I feel like we were meant to cross paths at some point. You grew up in Houston until age 12. I live in Houston now. And then recently I discovered that you live or you cover the Rehavia Shari Chesed neighborhood. Is that correct? In Israel? That's correct. Yeah. And that's where I used to live with my husband. So I don't know. <laughs> I think we were meant to intersect at some point in our lives. And here we are. That's so funny, Dessen. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to brag out. I want to brag about you a little bit, Miriam. You're the founder and the national director of the United Hatzala Psychotrauma and Crisis Response Unit. You won the Outstanding Medic Award in Hatzala two years in a row, the first woman to achieve this. The first time you were recognized for the number of responses, over 100 in your neighborhood alone. And the second time for your response time, which is under two minutes. And of course, now you founded and you're directing Hatzala Psychotrauma and Crisis Response Unit. Before we get to what that means, take us back in time, Miriam. How did it all start and why did you feel a calling to be involved with Hatzala in the first place? Um, well, my husband and I had been living in Sydney, where he's from, in Australia. And he was in medical school doing his thing. And then on the side, he would be, he joined the Hatzala in Sydney to be able to be a medic there. And he was going out to calls and he was coming back each time with this, this look on his face with this twinkle on his eyes with like satisfaction and excitement after he would get to save a life. And um, after a while, it was something that I really started to want to be part of. And a social organization, I wanted to be part of the organization as a medic as well. But um, like many other Jewish organizations, Hatala organizations, they at that point were not having women as active medics, but they did allow me to become a dispatcher. So I started dispatching for the organization and it was really exciting to get 
to get the calls and to send people out and know that I made the difference in helping get the right people there quickly. Um, but it wasn't the same as going to be an academic. Um, when we made our dream come true of moving to Israel and making Aliyah, the first thing that my husband did was join Hatsawa here, United Hatsawa. And then I asked if I could join as well. And they said, yes, of course. And there you trained. Then they would allow you to train as a medic in Israel. That's right. I did a six-month course a few times a week. It was quite a big investment. And it was all in Hebrew. I had just come to Israel. So I spent a lot of time doing Google Translate on all the stuff I was learning. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was how long ago, Miriam? That was about four and a half years ago. Okay, so four and a half... And I had just had a baby. I had this little tiny baby next to me. Like, I was rocking him while I was learning. And I was trying to do everything all at once. But I was really determined to make it work. So, okay. So, was that your first child? No, that was number four. <laughs> okay. So, all of this is going on while you've been raising four kids. Can I know that's right. Now I have five. Now so you have five kids. And you you have a day job as a family therapist. Is that correct? That's right. I see clients. Okay. So before we even get to your current work with Hatsala, can you tell us, like, how does it work practically with family life? You both are medics for Hatsala. You're raising a family. You have a day job. I mean, what are the challenges involved, practically speaking? So there are challenges involved. I can't say I'm an expert, but I'm trying to do the absolute best that I can. Number one, I try to convey to my children that they are the absolutely most important thing in my, in my life. You know, even more important than the work we do, the volunteer work that we do. Um, we obviously would never go out on a call together unless we had somebody like our own parents or other family members watching our children. Um, that rarely occurs, but sometimes it does. What we do do is we go in the evenings when our kids are asleep. We go on date night and instead of going to like a restaurant or something, we just get in a jeep or we go around Jerusalem or whatever calls come in. We're there. We're helping. Uh, but in the afternoon, I try to turn my phone off from like two to six and I tell them that it's mommy time and it's funny. If they hear the radio go off, they're like, oh, no, mommy time, because it's two to six. So they know, and I know, and we try very, very hard. The dispatch center has a secret number that they can reach me on if there's something that's a bit really catastrophic happening, like a parent's attack or something. Uh-huh. And then I can uh, get the call for like that, and I don't have to actually be listening to the phone the whole afternoon, and I can spend time with them. Right. And is there a... I can, I, I can say, though, that they definitely, they appreciate what we do, and we try, we try to present them on a very uh, basic level level with what we do and how we help others so that they can appreciate it. Uh, I could just tell you a small story that once I was want, I wanted to leave because I knew that there was a CPR taking place right across the street from me. And I asked my daughter, who is now eight, I asked her, is it okay if I go for a few minutes? And she said, no, I don't want you to go. I said, but you should stay here with Grandma. She's here. And she said, no, I don't want you to go. I said, you know what? If you don't want me to go, I'm not going anywhere. And then she looked at me. She stopped for a moment. She thought, and she said, you know what? I let you go. I said, really? Okay. So I left. I came back after we actually had a successful CPR. We had given the person two shots. And when I came back, I told her, you know, I'm not going to go into detail, but I told her, you know, you gave me the chance to really help somebody. And you could see in her eyes that she felt like she had been an active part of doing that and helping us with that. And it meant a lot to her. And it was something that, you know, I think makes her very proud of what we do. Wow. That's so beautiful. I can't even imagine what dinner table conversations are like in your home. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we work really hard to talk about normal everyday things and not all the crazy things that we encounter in the field. Wait, did you say before that sometimes you'll go out on a date with your husband and the date turns into Hatsala calls? Yeah, we actually had a really crazy one the other the other week. We were going out together uh-huh. and we were 
we were heading to Ramada school to go to a waffle bar, <laughs> and all of a sudden, a call came in for Shimon HaSadik Street, which is actually part of the Arab sector. Mm-hmm. So we went into the Arab sector together, and we were there, and there's this, this little Arab woman, like, flailing her arms in the middle of the street, like, waving us into the home. And we come in, and, like, the entire extended Arab family is all there, beside the grandmother, who, unfortunately, had not woken up from her nap. And we started CPR. Um, my husband, you know, as a doctor, can intubate and provide drugs, and I was doing compression. And we were really trying to get things underway. And then all these other medics joined us. We had like a Hasidish one from the Sha'arim join us. And then an Arab from East Jerusalem join us. And then an Armenian volunteer from Old City. And we literally were like this uh, huge mix of just really just coexistence in that room trying to save this woman's life. Uh, we actually got her, we got her pulse back afterwards. But it was amazing to see the appreciation that her family had. And they came up to me and they were so excited by the fact that we had succeeded. And they were just like beside themselves with emotion. And you could see that these were people who may have have perceived us in a certain way up until now, myself, Orthodox Jews, Jews, the people of Israel, Israel, whatever it may be, and we definitely made a very big change in their um, in their outlook that night. Wow, what a powerful, powerful story. That is incredible. Mm-hmm. Miriam, psychotrauma and yeah. crisis response, why? Why did you choose to spearhead this? What was going on that you felt this is something I need to take on? So in general, you know, PTSD became a very hot topic, especially in America. People are talking about it. A lot of emergency workers are starting to, you know, speak about their own trauma and how they're affected by it. Um, so, you know, it's kind of on my mind. I work with people with PTSD. Um, I see it on a regular basis. But what actually happened was after I finished my medic course, about a year later, I had been going on calls and I was really enjoying my work as a medic. And one day when I was running to get my kids, I decided to cross the street, but I, I didn't know that the car that stopped that allowed me to cross, there was actually a motorcycle directly behind him who tried to bypass it and smash into me. I went flying into the air, I landed on the floor, and the Aza, it's a very narrow street, it was raining like crazy, and it was also during the time of deliberate runover attacks, so people like jumped on the driver, assuming he was a terrorist, it was a huge scene, shall we say. They took me to the hospital, after we waited like 35 minutes for an ambulance, and I was being treated by the guys that I usually treat other people with who arrived in less than like two minutes and they bring me back afterwards I'm just bumped and bruised all my tests come out okay I'm just shaken up emotionally really and I tell my husband I want to go back there and I want to say thank you to those people because all these people came out store shopkeepers neighbors witnesses everybody's trying to take care of me in whatever way they can and I went back and I found something so disturbing that they were so traumatized by what they had seen and I, I was amazed by it because I was okay and I'm standing here and speaking to them and in my mind it's like a seemingly minor trauma because it wasn't one of the bad outcomes, unfortunate outcomes that we see on a regular basis. It was really an okay story in the end, perfectly fine outcome, but even that trauma was very significant for them. And then it just dawned on me, what if we could have a team that didn't just provide medical attention, that actually provided emotional and psychological stabilization on the scene of these accidents? Because my, my story was okay, but there are so many stories that leave people traumatized for years. Um, and trauma is so debilitating. And um, if we could have a team that actually knew what to say and knew what to do instead of people just trying to say the right things. I know here in Israel, they all say, don't worry, everything's fine, everything's okay, nothing happened. Calm down, man, stop crying. Um, and actually said the things that, they, that would be helpful. I felt like that would possibly minimize their chances later on of developing PTSD and it would set them up for success and the ability to return to routine. Hmm. How long ago did, t- did the, this, this unit start? 
so two years ago, I I started working with Abby Steinhardt. He is a social worker from Acadia as well, also a long-time medic, and Ricky uh, Rabinowitz, also from the neighborhood here, who's also a psychologist. So we basically sat down together, and we got we organized a group of psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists from all over who would take a course in psychological first aid, which, by the way, is like a totally uh, well-known and used protocol around the world that was developed by the World Health Organization. But the difference is that most of the people using it we're using it in like days to weeks after a traumatic incident, and we are going to be taking it and using it in moments following a traumatic incident. Wow. Um, in in Israel, they in Israel they say post trauma. You treat post trauma, but we don't treat post trauma. We treat trauma, a huge wow. stress reaction, because it's like happening right now, right here. It's not post the trauma. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so that's really different from the uniqueness of what we do. And additionally, we're not doing it just at major incidents like uh, natural disasters and terror attacks. We do do that as well. But we're also going into people's private homes that are very intimate situations, like God forbid a case of sudden infant death syndrome or any sudden death or suicide. We're there, we're with the people, we're doing whatever we can to be able to build a safe place for them to feel what they're feeling, to psychoeducate them about what they're feeling, to set them up to success with the resources they need if later on they're not feeling better, but rather worse. And I I have to ask, as this being part of Hatzala, it's also free to the public, correct? Of course. We have never and will never charge anybody for our services. Wow. This is really, this is really incredible. Is this something that you think is going to trickle to other Hatsalas around the world? Or is this just, you know? So I really hope so. We just presented at the, uh, the first international Hatsala conference in South Africa where representatives from Hatsalas all over the world were there. We presented the idea in front of them and they were, it was very well received. They were very uh, amazed by the idea and they definitely are considering how they can apply the model um, to their own local hatsalas. There are two additional things that we did do after we trained our team of psychological uh, experts in psychology to be able to go out to these calls. We decided that we need to train our medics as well. So we have given the option to our 3,500 medics to be able to take the course in psychological first aid because what we found was that they were suffering so much by being at the call and not knowing what to say or do, it was awkward for them. They would run away. They would take their bag after unsuccessful CPR on a baby and they would like throw it in their car and just get out of there because it was too much for them to see the mother crying. Right. So what we've done now is we've empowered them with the tools to be able to help her and support her and stabilize her through the trauma. And that empowers them and that gives them the, you know, a whole other level of care that they're able to provide. Um, and the last thing that we did was we organized a clinic and a hotline for our medics that they're able to reach out for help, whether they have PTSD for 35 years or they just yesterday were at a really difficult call, they can reach us, they can speak to somebody who knows what they're talking about and can really help them and assist them. And if need be, they can organize follow-up care later on. Wow. Miriam, has there been something in your education or your upbringing that you think has granted you the mental and the emotional fortitude to do this kind of work day in and day out? <laughs> in my education, I mean, I was very lucky to have gone to many different schools. <laughs> and each school had like a unique thing that they taught me and something that I came out with that has definitely contributed to me being able to be here right now. Um, one of the things that I think really gave me a lot of strength was directly when I moved to Israel. Right after I moved to Israel, we, we learned that we're in the same building with uh, Yamima Mizrahi, who's really a powerhouse of a woman. Yes. Um, and she, she and I became very close. And when I was able to just see her and her day-to-day life making a difference and doing so much, not just for Jews, but for the entire state of Israel, mm-hmm. it was something that very much inspired me to take all of the 
which I had learned, and just apply it to being able to be productive and helpful and make a Kiddush Hashem. Because I think the Jewish, the Jewish uh, education system gives you the right tools to understand your strengths and how you can contribute. You just sometimes need a little bit of a, a kick to actually get your idea off the road. And I do believe that women have an amazing ability to perceive and understand needs in different areas and to be able to fill the gap. And they, you know, together with their Fiatah Dishmaya and God giving them, uh, blessing them in what they do, they're able to really accomplish incredible things. I see it on a day-to-day basis. So many women who you don't even know about who are doing unbelievable things. Um, I really, I feel small next to many of them. Yes, yes. And we do have the toolbox. We just have to open it, push ourselves to open it and utilize it, right? Um, totally. Yeah, I want to tell you, Yamima Mizrahi was my Opan teacher. We also were neighbors because I lived in that neighborhood. And many, many years ago, she was when she, you know, she, when she was practicing as a lawyer, she was also an Opan teacher. So she was my first Hebrew teacher in Israel. <laughs> It is amazing. And we had a, such a cute relationship because I was a new bride and sometimes we'd bump into each other as we were walking that you know toward to, to school so we would walk together. So I have very fond memories of that brief relationship with her. Um Miriam, you've no doubt you've seen miracles. Um, you already told us this one very powerful story about the Arab family and how much they've appreciated. They appreciated your work and all of the other medics' works and the diversity of the people that were present in the room. But you've also probably seen many miracles. Can you tell me some of the most memorable stories? Yeah, sure. We actually had a story not long ago where my husband and I were doing one of our date night outings and we were going around Jerusalem and they said that in Binyane Umar in the huge uh, theater, there was actually somebody uh, totally unconscious. So it's really hit or miss over there because it's an enormous building and you could you could park at one end of the building and then the patient be all the way on the other side of the building or the opposite. So it's really it's, it's luck, you know. So we pulled up at the side of the building and I remember saying to my husband, like, I hope we're on the right side. And we went inside and we were literally right there. We found the man and we're treating this man who is actually semi-conscious but in a very bad way and deteriorating right in front of our eyes wow. and when we look at him we realize we know him and we looked again and it's our neighbor from our own building and I said to him Mr. Stoker Mr. Stoker are you okay and he obviously isn't able to listen but what I did remember is that Mr. Stoker goes everywhere with his wife every time I see him he's together with his wife so I found it strange that I couldn't find his wife anywhere near him and then it dawned on me that he was probably he had left I just go to the restroom or something else and that she's still sitting happily watching uh, the orchestra and has no idea that this is happening. So my husband started to treat him and they actually had to put in put on an external pacemaker to be able to help his heart, which was totally not beating regularly at that point. I went in to go look for his wife. I brought her out, obviously broke it to her very slowly and calmly that he's not in a good place right now that we need to get him straight to the hospital. I took her there. We got him to the hospital quickly with really, I think, very, very professional treatment from my husband and from the other medics that were present. And then we went back to our house you know we just hoped for the best and it was amazing because just a week later he came back home and he gave us you know my husband a big hug his wife me a big hug and now we see them every single day go on their little morning walk down the block and every time we see them it's just amazing because the last time we saw him it was like he was not himself he was you know in a uh, puddle of blood because he had hit his head and we just it looked really really bad and to see him with a smile walking around is like super fulfilling wow that is Hashkaha Pratis at its best right there I mean that's like <laughs> mamash from God that it was you and your husband who were handpicked to take care of this man who knew the wife knew him knew how to handle this personally 
And like from a trauma perspective, like imagine I, I hadn't thought about his wife and they had just taken him to the hospital and she just sat there watching like the orchestra for like another hour and then had no idea what was going on. I mean, it would have been horrible. I'm so happy that we were able to get there and identify her and help out. We had another amazing story just recently that we presented at the United Hotel concert with a two-year-old that on the first day of Sukkot had gone out of his sukkah and was playing in a little pond in the French shell. And he actually fell into the, the little pond and he drowned in the little pond. And the people in the sukkah realized he was missing and they went searching for him. And they found this lifeless little boy in the pond and they brought him back and they're trying to, everyone's trying to help him in some way. They called Hatsala right away. The United Hotel medics got there in literally 90 seconds and started CPR on him. My husband arrived much later as a physician coming from the other side of town, but he made sure that he was getting the right treatment. He took the wife and, you know, to the hospital, stayed there actually the whole entire day of Sukkot um, to be able to help them and explain to them the process of going on because, you know, they're not familiar with the medical system here. And at the end, this kid, the next day, was walking around totally fine when the day before he had had no pulse. So that was really very, very touching for us. Wow, that is amazing. That is just absolutely amazing. Miriam, we don't have Hatsala in Houston. um, And we often talk about, like, how come we don't have it? And, you know, Hatsala really fills a a critical need, the gap between the emergency incident and the time that the ambulance gets there or 911 or whoever. Exactly. What, you know, what what do you think needs to happen for communities um, I'm not saying Houston in particular, but just in general, that what do we need to do to, in general, to make Hatsala happen? So it's so important to have community-based responders that are trained. It's so important. And every city decides to do it, you know, with whatever regulations and laws they're able to use and and uh, utilize to be able to set it up. But sometimes there are different complications, and I understand that. But in my opinion, you're able to train and give people uh, first aid courses in any community, regardless of laws and uh, regulations. So at very least, there should be training all the time of people within the community learning how to save a life if they just so happen to be next to somebody who needs that help. Um, at very most, to take the model and to try to apply it as best as they possibly can, whether it's getting your own ambulances, whether it's not getting the ambulances and just having people use their private cars, whether it's having radios or having an application or having some sort of system in which people who are trained to help will know about the call going on and can get there. Because that's how, you know, that's how United Hotel started with our president, Ellie Bear, who was going on the back of the ambulances for like a whole year and never actually got the chance to save a life because the ambulance would just get there so late. And at one of the calls where he was, a two-year-old had choked and died. And at the end of the call, a doctor from across the street walks over and says, can I help? And they say, you are a doctor across the street this whole time and you couldn't even come because you didn't know about the call. It's an unbelievable thing to think about just having the knowledge and having the information is what gives us the ability to save a life. So everyone should apply it in their community as best as they possibly can. Push for it, raise funds for it. There's nothing like supporting a Hatsala. Everybody always supports Hatsala after somebody saves a family member's life. You know, if people would support Hatsala before that, it would also be helpful. Wow. Yeah, this this needs to be definitely a priority in every community. And by the way, I should just clarify that Hatsala is there to help anybody. It's not just people in the Jewish community, correct? 100%. I mean, here in Israel, we are super diverse, and I'm so proud of uh, 
how far we've reached. We have Druze, Ethiopian, Christian, Arab, Jews, all volunteering, all saving lives on a day-to-day basis, but obviously also treating everybody and anybody that asks for help or needs the help. Um, Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm very, yeah, very moved by that. Miriam, has there ever been a point where you've doubted, where you felt this is too much to handle, my shoulders are not broad enough? Did it, did it ever come to that? Um, you know, you have a lot of uh, unfortunate things that you're faced with, a lot of calls that didn't turn out the way you wanted to, and you can sometimes see things that the average, you know, woman in her 30s is not supposed to see or know about even. And when you get presented with those unfortunate things, sometimes you say, well, am I exposing myself too much? Is this going to take a call on me later on? Is this something that I should be exposing myself? You get a lot of, you, you know, you come up with a lot of questions and you reassess. And when you reassess, I think it's always good to speak to outside people to get instruction from those that are wiser than you, to be able to obviously speak to a Rav, to be able to get his blessing. And that's what I do when things are hard for me. I reach out, I speak to people, I try to reassess and I try to make a, a decision, but an informed decision on what I think is appropriate and healthy for me. And thank God the hard times haven't affected my ability to continue to contribute. If anything, I feel like the hard times have given me more strength to be able to do more. Wow. Wow, Miriam. You've brought innovation to EMS as a woman and as an observant woman. In Israel, they would call you Haredi, right? And it's such a polarized country <laughs> when it comes to religion. And so what has been the reception like? This Haredi woman is turning this organization upside down for the good. I'm sure everybody recognizes that. But what's been like? It's been interesting. <laughs> it's been very, very interesting. Um, I find that also when I speak to people on the phone or I do an interview or we write an article or we put together a paper about the different work, the work that we're doing, um, at the end, you know, people kind of ask me a little bit about me just as a courtesy, you know, and when I tell them, you know, I'm like, oh, I live in Jerusalem and, you know, I, I'm a religious woman and they learn a little bit about me. They're usually surprised, uh, which still surprises me. <laughs> um, because like I said before, in the other question that we answered, there are so many women doing so many amazing things and so many crazy women doing so many amazing things. Um, Alternatively, there are so many times where I meet people and they look at me in the face and they see that I'm dressed, you know, modestly and that I'm wearing a wig and they, it doesn't, you know, they don't even blink. So there are people who are able to just, you know, look right past that and say, wow, great work. You're doing an amazing job. And that also gets me uh, very warm and fuzzy inside that we are able to achieve in the eyes of those people the same as anybody else. Um, but when they had this article come out during the time of the, the hurricane in Houston, uh, it was it was interesting to me that after giving an entire interview on my team and what my team was going out to do, the caption on the newspaper was, Haredi woman heads to Houston to help out. Um, and I I guess it's something that is interesting for people. I hope and pray that I'm able to be just one a representative of the many amazing Haredi women that are doing work, uh, good work, and uh, showing the world that we're capable. Wow. What a kiddush Hashem. It's so beautiful. It's so, so beautiful. Miriam, thank you. Sleep? <laughs> I mean, all throughout, I'm thinking, wow, like, do you ever, no, seriously, do you ever sleep? <laughs> 
not really. <laughs> we really actually don't sleep a lot. We have to work on that. Um, it's tempting for us, you know, because when our kids are asleep, so that's when we have a bit of quiet and that's when we get to do like all these, like we get up to all these crazy things and we can change the world and we can like, you know, move mountains and trying to achieve different things. And thank God we do a lot of productive things throughout the, uh, <laughs> throughout the night hours. <laughs> God. We really, uh, we really don't sleep a lot, but I think, uh, I, I think we're uh, managing just fine with our sleep level for the time being, but it should probably probably be adjusted to a healthier uh, <laughs> sleep schedule at some point. There's always room for improvement, right? Hi, Miriam. Let's do some <laughs> fill in the blanks. And this is the part of the show where I give you an open-ended state- statement and you fill it with whatever first thing comes to mind, okay? Okay. All right. <laughs> I am Miriam B- Ballin, and I feel most spiritual when? When... When I'm able to go to the Kosovo, <laughs> oh, so I moved to Eretz Israel because I know it sounds cliche, but I moved here to get to be at all the holy places in this country. And when you move to a place and you're close to all those spiritual places, somehow you never get to them. And sometimes I have asked myself, like, I'm living here and I never get to these places. And the people that are coming to tour Israel find themselves there more often. So I now make a time and I make a allotted amount of time to go to whether it be the Kotel, Kedar Rachel, other places where I can actually just invest in my own self, my own spirit, my own spirituality, my own just peace of mind and getting to just be one with myself. And um, I do that there at the Kotel because I do live down the block from it and I should take advantage of it and I should make the most of it. That is so, it's so important what you just said. And I, I guess I never thought about it. Yes, you're right. You think you moved to Israel and it's all there. So you're going to be going all the time. But no, you have lo- a life too. So if you don't make the time, then you're not going to be taking advantage of these opportunities to connect spiritually at those very holy places that are just right there waiting for you, right? That's right. Exactly. And like my kids even love going to the Kosovo. It's like their favorite activity to go there and to, we get pizza on the way and then we go to the Kosovo and we daven and we say to Helen and we daven for all the people that we know need a little bit of help or a lot of bit of help and then we come home and that's like so exciting for them instead of going to like Chuck E. Cheese they just want to go to the Kosal and I like I, I forget to appreciate how unique that is oh and I try it's to keep that excitement You're just making me want to be in Israel more I mean just yeah it's like part of your family life a family outing that is so awesome I, I so love that and I think once my husband hears <laughs> this he's going to start pushing for the Aliyah situations situation <laughs> <laughs> Come on over. <laughs> um, my favorite that mitzvah. Awesome. My favorite mitzvah, or one I feel most connected with, is my favorite mitzvah. Uh, tzedakah. <laughs> I I feel like a very big drive to try to help people have what they need. Um, I often find myself uh, trying to help our medics out or other people in the area in the neighborhood. Uh, we live in Rakhavia, which is a very affluent area. It's considered in Jerusalem, yet we forget that there are people here that can't afford to buy bread or milk. Um, I will often try to help people out and take a case upon myself and just like ask all the people that are walking about enjoying their life who never even thought about not being able to buy milk and bread if they can help support those because it just hurts me so much to see people that don't have what they need. Um, Beautiful. And obviously to support important causes. There are so many important causes that people don't appreciate enough or even just don't know about them enough to appreciate them and want to contribute. So we recently finished a campaign here in our own neighborhood where I... (laughs) I basically went from door to door trying to collect funds 
for an ambulance for our neighborhood. Um, and we managed in the end to come up with the $180,000 so that we now have an ambulance specifically here in our neighborhood. It even is able to be divided into a unique type of ambulance to treat people emotionally and divide them to clinics. Um, but it's a nice, a really nice feeling. The ambulance was actually yesterday uh, escorting uh, Rosh Steinman at his Levaya through the hundreds of thousands of people. Wow. And it's just an amazing thing to know that you help raise funds for something. And it's annoying to raise funds. Trust me, I, I hate asking for stuff <laughs> and money. But be able to get this money, bring it to a good cause, see what comes to fruition. It's really a very, very fulfilling end result. So beautiful. You know, I forgot to tell you before, I recently had a guest on the show. She also lives in Israel. And um, when I asked her um, what she likes to give tzedakah to, she said, Hatzalah because she said yes she and she said these words she said I have tremendous akarasatov for Hatsala and she had an incident where she took the wrong medication and she was she had an allergic reaction and it was not a good thing and not a fun thing and Hatsala was there to save her um so oh, wow. yeah my fondest sweetest Jewish memory is um wow <laughs> So many. You know, I'm not supposed to think about it. I'm supposed to answer on the spot. Um, I think I grew up in very small town Jewish communities and this sounds really funny and dorky but one of the most significant things in my life as a Jew was coming to New York and I came to Muncie, New York for the very first time after having lived out of, out of town all the time and they took me to this grocery store Wesley Kosher uh-huh. and like I remember we walked in and they were like you know everything here is kosher and I was like what? what? everything? <laughs> and like to me that was like <laughs> The most incredible, remarkable thing that you could have. Now we have a bunch of them all over. We have Seven Mile in Baltimore, and we have Pomegranate in New York, and we have huge grocery stores that are entirely filled with kosher food all over. But at that time, like, I had just never been exposed to a store that was entirely kosher. We had to go to, you know, the local Safeway and, like, choose between the products, and, like, most things were not kosher. And it was really very amazing, and it just gave me, like, this feeling that our people are growing and developing and, and building, and look what we've achieved. We have, like, grocery stores supporting huge community entirely filled and stocked with kosher food that for me was like even as a small child like really impacting what a what a beautiful answer that's that's so awesome and it's so true even my kids listen we live in Houston and it's not it, when my kids go to New York the few times that they've been there it's like what like I can't believe it you know they're like kids in a candy store everything is kosher totally <laughs> um, Miriam, did, um, totally I'm, I'm so like that I'm sure. <laughs> Is your family still in the United States? My family actually just moved to Israel. <laughs> oh, very nice. That's super cool. Yeah, we didn't even realize what it was like, like how, how hard it was not having any family here until all of a sudden we had family here. And it was like, oh, right. You can have parents and they can even help out or you can call them when it's like a normal hour for you. And it was just like, oh, it's a whole new world now. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Your, your husband's family still remains in Australia? Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, something I wish I had learned about Judaism growing up is... <laughs> 
Um, I think that not everything is black and white. Um, I think that, you know, they often present our Judaism to us with black and white. This is bad. This is good. This is wrong. This is right. And obviously there are some things that are always bad and there are some things that are always wrong. But I, I think that the flexibility of understanding that different people come from different backgrounds and therefore we, we need to really appreciate the good that they have within them and, and not judge and try to work with them and appreciate them or even different things that we do as Jews to, you know, something maybe difficult for us, but it's not either we do it or we don't do it. It's not all or nothing. I think that sometimes just looking at things with a bit of flexibility gives us a chance to understand them. And once we understand and then we can appreciate them and then we can do them, live them, uh, and grow from them. Yeah, you know, I agree. I think we live in a sea of gray. There's a lot of gray between the black and white and Judaism helps us navigate the gray. There's a lot of gray area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have to be aware of the gray area. If you're not aware of the gray area, so then you get lost in the gray area. Yes. And that's, that's a shame. Yes, and that's, that's where Judaism is the guiding light to make us aware and help us navigate that. Finally, I'm Miriam Ballin, and today I'm most grateful for... My family. <laughs> my family, definitely. My husband specifically, because I have the most unbelievable supportive husband who allows me to do all of what I do. And when most husbands would say, you're not or enough or forget about it, he says, go for it. That's how I got to Houston. That's how I got to here. That's how I was able to become a medic in a language that I never spoke. And the reason why I feel like we've succeeded and my unit has succeeded is really in essence because of him. So beautiful. And yes, we forgot to highlight that, that you did mention it briefly, but you were in Houston after, right after Harvey. How did that, how did that happen, by the way? How did you get picked? Uh, it was an amazing story. I'm still on a high from it and it's already a few months ago. <laughs> but basically what happened was I was following the storm because I'm from Houston and, you know, I wanted to know what was going on, what was being damaged, what, like, you know, what was happening. Mm-hmm. And I was following it online and my husband was looking at me following it online and he said, you know, you, you really need to be there. And I wow. said, I need to be there? I need to be here. I've got five kids, remember? Hello? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, you and your people should be there. You have an amazing thing that you can contribute there. And he was referring to the psychic trauma work of helping all those people devastated who had lost their homes and, and even family members and he said you should go and that literally a moment later I got a phone call from the organization saying prepare a team you're going out to Houston you'll be providing psychic trauma work there and I got a team together I went out there literally the next day and we arrived at Houston actually we thought we were going to be helping the Jewish community we were prepared to come to help the Jewish community and what we found was very amazing that the Jewish community actually had so much support that there wasn't need for us and we got a phone call from the mayor of Houston and he said no no what we need right now for you is for you to go out to Fort Arthur Beaumont those areas are still like in the worst of the worst and they're trying to save people still off of their rooftops and air mattresses and all those horror stories that you're watching on uh, the computer on TV those are all still taking place and we need you over there and then we went there and it was really a journey just getting there physically we drove through like four feet of water and we were told we can't get through and that we won't be allowed through and we used a lot of chutzpah to make sure we got through and we ended up there and when we arrived the American Red Cross really incorporated us like into a fully integrated part of the triage process and we were able to really help thousands of people that were coming off of buses who were displaced from all over and to work with them to do emotional and psychological counseling
counseling with them, get them off to the next safe place, which was Dallas Convention Center. And uh, I really came to give and I, I think I got so much more than what I gave. That is amazing. Isn't that so true? When we give, we gain so much more than we think, right? So much. And these people were able to smile and be happy and give hope to each other and love each other when they had just literally lost everything. That's amazing. Um, did they realize it was really moving. Did they realize you and your team came from Israel? Not that it's important, but I'm just curious. They realized and we made sure to tell them. Everyone that we met, we made sure to tell them. Jews, they didn't necessarily know what a Jew was or wasn't, but Israel and the people of Israel was very significant for them, especially being that it's the Bible Belt and people are Good. very religious and they were really relying on their faith a lot to be able to get out of this and to know that people, the people of Israel had actually come to be with them. That was like in and of itself something that meant so much to them. You could see on their face. Wow. Good. Amazing. That's beautiful. Mary, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to do this. It's Hanukkah. I'm sure everybody's waiting for you upstairs at home, back at home. Um, <laughs> so appreciate it. You make me so proud. You make all of us so proud. And I encourage everybody to, I guess, you know, what should, they, should, they should follow you. They should see. They should get involved in their local Hatsala. They should donate to United Hatsala. Hatsala. It's so important. So important. And ladies out there, follow your dreams. You can achieve so much. It's the holiday of miracles. Anything can happen. If you believe in it, you can make it happen. Good luck. I'm going to eat a donut. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Mary. Take care. <laughs> Thanks to Miriam Balin for stopping by. Miriam almost took me on an adventure, or at least I felt like that could happen any minute. We recorded on Hanukkah while Miriam was sitting in her car with her radio and her phone plugged as, of course, she could be called anytime. So you can imagine how much I appreciated her being here with us today. To find out more about United Hatzalah and to donate to this worthy organization, go to israelrescue.org and, of course, make sure you're supporting your local Hatzalah unit. And if you don't have one yet, perhaps you found inspiration in Miriam's words and helped get one started in your hometown. Maybe that should be one of our goals for 2018. What can we be doing, practically speaking, to help save a life? Wow, seems daunting, but I guess it really need not be. There's a lot that we could be doing. United Hatzalah is on Facebook at united.hatzalah.jerusalem. All of this and more back at jewishlatinprincess.com. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit jewishlatinprincess.com.